0: I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. I'd like to welcome back Dr. John Alterman, who is a senior vice president at CSIS. He's also our Brzezinski chair in geostrategy and director of our Middle East program to get to the truth of the matter about the latest in the Israel-Hamas situation. John, first, I want to ask you. The images that we're seeing now, the news has shifted. We're not seeing Israeli victims, we're seeing Palestinian victims. We're everyone speculating as to what Israel's going to do next. Are they going to conduct a ground invasion? Israel seems to be in a pretty difficult position because it wants to eliminate Hamas, their enemy, but it doesn't want to hurt innocent people, yet innocent people are getting hurt. What's your read on the situation?
1: So first, there are a number of Israelis, I've heard from them directly, that they don't feel there are innocent civilians in Gaza. They they think that everybody in Gaza is complicit in Hamas violence, Hamas hatred of Israel. So I'm not actually sure how everyone in the Israeli military sees this, how all Israeli citizens see it. And, you know, I think that could actually lead to some more violence because of a sense that some people have. Not all, and maybe not the leadership, but that some people have that really everybody is fair game here, and that's I think going to change the way the world sees this. This will be,
0: but I don't think the Israelis are th- saying that innocent children and families are fair game I think I think look, I've gotten calls from any number of people. I've written innocent
1: palestinian civilians in some of my newsletters and people call me at home and they complain that there's no such thing as innocent palestinian civilians so that view is there how many people adhere to it i don't know but that there really is a sense that hamas is deeply penetrated into gaza and people argue that the people of gaza elected hamas and support hamas and have culpability for what hamas has done including Raining terror and death on more than 1400 Israelis and if people get killed they get what's coming to them. I don't think that's the overwhelming view. I don't know where the division is but I think there are some number of Israelis some of whom are in the military who say you know what I don't really care about sorting it out because if the Palestinians want to fight their way to independence by killing Israelis we can kill them even harder. That's a view. Again, how much of a view it is, I don't know, but that's an element. And when you're in a military and you're, you're trying to have folks follow whatever rules of war you set, I think one of the problems that the Israelis are going to have is setting boundaries on what's fair game and what's not.
0: I mean, let's face it, though. Israel feels like it's a broken nation right now. There's probably no one in Israel that doesn't know someone or have someone in their family that was killed on Black Saturday.
1: And they feel the world doesn't care, and it's a reflection of deep anti-Semitism
0: around the world. Which we're seeing here on our campuses in the United States.
1: Right. But as I said, but I think that there's a part of Israeli public opinion that says all of this concern with civilian lives and everything else is just a manifestation of people who don't understand that Israelis feel vulnerable, that Israel has to respond disproportionately because it's in a sea of hostile Arabs. I mean, all those things. Again, I couldn't begin to tell you what the breakdown is. But there certainly are people who say, look, Arabs have been living in violence for centuries and you can play Scandinavian rules and you will get nowhere. Or you can treat Arabs the way other Arabs treat Arabs and use violence and people die. But that's what you have to do to secure yourself. I've heard that from a number of Israelis. Does that represent 50 percent of Israelis, 20 percent of Israelis or 80 percent? I don't know, but there is that viewpoint. I also know that this is going to be the most photographed war in human history, that everybody has a cell phone with a camera and is recording things. There is a huge appetite for the most jarring images because they reinforce this sort of moral imperative to care about civilian suffering. And we've seen it both on the Israeli side And we've seen it on the Palestinian side, when Israeli troops are in the frame, when you're not just bombing from the air, and you're going to see children with bullet holes through their head and missing limbs and all those things, which we will see because we've already seen them. This is going to be different. It is going to spread around the world. People are going to care in a different way. I think Israel is likely to be much more isolated when ground operations are underway, Than it is now. A lot of Israelis will say, we don't care, that the world's never cared about us.
0: Well, they're also saying, you know, the United States did similar things in Iraq and Afghanistan after 9 11 and nobody cared.
1: Right. And as I say, I think there is part of this conflict, the media piece, which has something to do with diminished content regulation on social media sites. It has to do with algorithms that want to get people. I
0: mean, this war is being streamed, it's being algorithmed, and there is a clear campaign.
1: And we haven't seen the apex at all. And I think with ground operations, you are going to see an apex, how that plays out, how people respond, what kinds of images. You know, I'm bracing myself for an extraordinarily polarized environment. I don't know what Israeli ground operations are going to be like, but it's hard to do ground operations really cleanly. And Hamas isn't going to be interested in in fighting fair. You know, Hamas uses human shields, it it puts bases in the center of hospitals and schools and all sorts of things. Hamas is thinking about what it can win online that it can't win on the battlefield. Israel has its own impressive public diplomacy operation, Hasbara, how this comes out, I don't know, but as a Middle East nerd-
0: Hasbara, the Hebrew word for PR. Propaganda. Propaganda.
1: You know, as a Middle East nerd who felt that the world's really disinterested in the Middle East, they've turned away, we're pivoting toward Asia, we're, you know, the Middle East. The amount of interest that this struggle Has aroused everywhere is breathtaking. Among people who thought they were no longer interested in the Middle East, we heard all sorts of things from Arab leaders. Young Arabs don't care about Palestine anymore. They've moved on. They care about consumer goods. They care about entertainment and music and all sorts of other things. They do care about Palestine. Americans are divided, and we see this on college campuses. Young people who are not plugged in international relations have connected to this issue, and there are going to be images that will feed each side that will support the narratives of each side. And this is gonna be a whole different kind of war with content moderation, largely on the sidelines.
0: John, I wanna ask you about antisemitism and how that plays into this. But first I wanna ask you, it seems like the onus has really shifted onto Israel and it's not on Hamas. How do you think that's happened?
1: You know, it's interesting. I I interviewed the Jordanian foreign minister yesterday. Yeah, right. Here at CSIS. Really interesting interviews, a very, very skillful guy. You can watch it at
0: CSIS.org.
1: And he was very, very sparing in his use of the word Hamas. We have talked about, so what did you say to the UN Security Council yesterday in New York? And he gave a whole narrative, which didn't use the word Hamas once, and asked him about it. Right? I mean, there is a sense in the Arab world, and I think a sense in much of the global South, that this is about Palestine. And this is about Palestinians. And Hamas is a small fraction. And... Certainly, if you believe the polling, Washington Institute, which is an organization whose donors are very pro-Israel, they did some polling in Gaza and they found that the overwhelming majority of Gazans didn't want Hamas to be in power. But this is seen as and is being portrayed as being about Palestinians and not about Hamas. What I find, you know, from a strategic perspective, a little bit disturbing is I haven't heard the Israelis focus on the importance of splitting Hamas from the population they purport to represent, whose interests they purport to defend. Hamas exploits the people of Gaza economically, politically, in terms of livelihoods. They want misery in Gaza because it helps them recruit. It's frustrating to me that as Israel prepares these operations, they don't seem to be thinking deeply about how do we split the population off from Hamas. I think one of the things that American officials have been pounding into them is, look, we've done 20 years of counterinsurgency in Afghanistan, in Iraq, on the Iraq-Syria border. The core to this is the governance that comes afterward. You probably can't eliminate Hamas completely as an organization. You won't be able to eliminate Hamas as an idea, but you can isolate it. And that's how you have to fight the war with the goal of splitting the population off from the leadership How much the Israelis have internalized this, how effectively they'll be able to prosecute it, I don't know. But it is
0: really interesting to me. But again, it's on Israel to sort all this out. And where is the responsibility? And they have
1: have 2,000 American military advisors and a three-star Marine general who fought in Mosul to try to help Israelis figure it out in a productive way.
0: Right. But what I'm saying is Israel has to figure this out. And it's really complex, as you pointed out. It's a global issue. And yet Hamas, who perpetrated these heinous crimes, is kind of just sitting back on its heels and letting the suffering go on in Palestine, holding 200 plus hostages, not negotiating. And yet all the onus is on Israel to sort all this out. Where is the world coming and saying, Hamas needs to do something? I don't hear that.
1: So what the Jordanian foreign minister said is what we call on both sides, right? We call on an end to escalation. The discussion of Hamas is implicit. And, you know, in the Arab League statement, my recollections are nine paragraphs. One talk about both sides to end escalation. And then eight paragraphs about the rights of, of Palestinian people. I don't see sustained outrage against Hamas. I don't think people grasp fully the cynicism of Hamas in exploiting Palestinian suffering. That being said, as you know, Israelis are really not beginning even to engage with the idea of dealing with Palestinian issues. Israelis convince themselves they don't have to deal with Palestinian issues. Interestingly, President Biden is starting to talk about the need to deal with Palestinian issues. And I think what, what we're seeing in a very interesting way is the way in which the Biden visit to Israel was, was a deposit. The embrace of, of Benjamin Netanyahu was a deposit and now the Americans are starting to insist on payoff for the deposit. I think we're going to see that partly in U.S. insistence on how the Israelis do urban warfare. I think we're going to see it in terms of the Biden administration really wanting to move on Arab-Israeli issues. Don't forget the first intifada helped create an environment where we moved toward Oslo. For people are really talking about a two-state solution. So the diplomacy of where this goes is very interesting. I think Joe Biden is playing this in a much more sophisticated way than people initially thought, that he's totally in with Netanyahu. How well he'll be able to play this diplomatically in the months to come, whether he wins re-election, future administrations, I mean, any number of questions. Obviously, Israel remains, as you rightly say, Israel's is deeply traumatized by the events of October 7th. Palestinians consider themselves deeply traumatized by everything since 1948. Can we use this as a moment to get beyond it? I don't know, but I'll tell you one thing that's super Israelis different.
0: also, by the way, are traumatized by everything since 1948 as well.
1: — But I'll tell you one thing that is stark to me. There is no leadership on either side to lead in this direction. There's no Israeli leadership that wants to go in this direction. I mean, like leadership where, where you have people who have political support.
0: — Like you had at Oslo.
1: Ishak Rabin, who was somebody with credibility, who said, and I've looked hard, and this is what we're going to do. Yasser Arafat, for all of his vanity and lack of courage, right, I think he couldn't imagine himself doing something hard at the end. But he at least— And he didn't. But he at least was Mr. Palestine. There is no Mr. Palestine. There is no Israeli leader who has earned his or her stripes and wants to move in this direction. You're sort of resurrecting a more coherent polity to do this is going to be t- is going to take years and years and years. Getting Israelis to move from the anger and hurt of October seventh is going to take years, and sorting out accountability for the failures that led to October seventh is going
0: to take years. John. You've written about this and a really terrific piece called The World Can't Solve the Israel-Hamas War Without Egypt. The Biden administration is also trying to engage the Arab world to help the Palestinians. And so far, not a lot of help has come. You're writing about how this can't be solved without Egypt. Explain what you mean by that and what Egypt's relationship with Hamas is and what Egypt needs to do to help resolve this current conflict.
1: Egypt has a longstanding hostile relationship with Hamas. Hamas is an outgrowth of the Muslim Brotherhood, which for almost the entirety of the period since its founding in 1928 in Ismailia in Egypt until the present day, with a brief 12-month interregnum of Mohammed Morsi being the president of Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood has been an opposition force in the country. That being said, Egypt has a practical relationship with Gaza, which used control from 1948 to 67. They have security interests There's a whole bunch of smuggling that goes on underground by the Rafah crossing. There's all the overground trade. The borders with Israel are not going to to be where Gaza reconstruction comes through. It's going to come through the Rafah crossing, through Egypt. Egypt's going to try to make money off this. Egypt's going to try to ensure that whatever happens doesn't undermine Egyptian interests. Egypt is going to be the junction point for all the logistics involved in whatever happens in Gaza, who gets out of Gaza, all those kinds of questions. Egypt has 105 million people. It's the most populous country in the Arab world. It has an actually effective foreign ministry. It has a bureaucracy that can work. So I think as we think about the involvement of Saudis and the involvement of Emiratis and the involvement of Moroccans and Jordanians, everybody else who potentially has a role in the Arab world, as we think about Europeans having a role. It's all going to go through Egypt. And the Egyptians have a shared concern with not having Hamas recover power. They have an interest in stability in Gaza. There's something to work with, but Egypt's also going to demand that its interests be advanced, partly economically, partly politically and diplomatically. I think Egypt, which in many ways has been marginalized in the Arab world since the Arab Spring in 2011, has been so consumed with its internal issues that Egypt's footprint as a regional power diminished. But the need to do something constructive with Gaza, which the world is going to be focused on, is going to put Egypt in a position to recover a lot of that centrality that that it lost and hasn't had for more than a decade.
0: But like you said, Egypt shares the same concerns Israel has with Hamas and they're worried about their own security. So they're in a very similar position that the Israelis are in. They haven't suffered an attack the way the Israelis have, but they certainly can envision suffering something like that.
1: I don't think Hamas has the ability or interest to attack Egypt directly as there's...
0: But it can undermine the government.
1: I think the Egyptian intelligence services have a different relationship with Hamas than Israeli intelligence services. I think the stakes are lower, but they're more ruthless in some ways. They don't really have to make the compromises, but I think they're also more willing to make compromises. I just think they just engage with each other differently. They have a different starting point. If you're talking about good governance, Egypt's not necessarily your ideal model. But I think everybody who wants governance in Gaza is going to have to work out something with the Egyptians one way or the other.
0: John, final question. Anti-Semitism clearly been on the rise. Now it seems like it's about to drift into overdrive both in the United States and globally because of this conflict. What are your thoughts?
1: I think anti-Semitism ultimately traces back to a deep sense of alienation. And I think, I look around the world, I see alienation rising everywhere. I see alienation rising in this country. I see alienation rising in Europe. I see it driving politics all over the world anti-Semitism is one manifestation of it. but I think there's a broader problem of people feeling more alienated from their societies, people feeling that unfairness is endemic, and there are people who are responsible for it. I mean, that's obviously the core instinct to anti-Semitism. I don't think it's limited to anti-Semitism, but I do think we have an epidemic of alienation, cynicism, and we need to find ways to deal with that and to channel some of those feelings and turn them around, or it's not just going to be anti-Semitism. I think the world is going to be in a much, much more difficult
0: position in the years to come. John, thank you very much. Really appreciate all your insight today. Thank you, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify.